Hey you, thanks for being a valued listener of Remedial Herstory. Please consider subscribing so we can keep bringing you content. I wanted to let you know about a few things we offer beyond the podcast. If you love what we're talking about here, then you are going to love the Remedial Herstory Master's Classes we have linked in the show notes and on our website. We have three courses, one on pedagogy, U.S. history, and world history, and of course, talking about women in all of those contexts. We also have an annual Summer Educators Retreat, which is in person. Details about that are on our website. Our website is also packed with learning materials, including articles for every era of U.S. and world history that we built with a collaboration of over 20 historians. We also have lesson plans for elementary, middle, and high school that involve analysis of primary source material and get students doing history. We also have a video series that goes along with that. All of this is only possible because of the generous contributions from our patrons. You can also support Remedial Herstory at remedialherstory.com giving or by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash remedialherstory. Thanks for helping us make history. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? In today's episode, we are talking with Dr. Melissa Blair from Auburn mm-hmm. University about how they started catering political campaigns to women voters after suffrage. Let's get into this. Heck yeah. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, the other 50% the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Okay, Brooke, so I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Melissa Blair. She has been on our podcast before, talking about black women's clubs. She has been a speaker at our summer retreat, and I am so excited to have her back because she's a total badass. And <laughs> she has a new book coming out called Taking Home the White House. She'll tell us a little bit more about it. Okay. Um, but basically, after suffrage passes, we have this huge world war. Uh, okay. We have the Depression and the world war. And literally, men are abroad. And yes. So, and that is the focus of the nation. Yeah. And so, you know, when Franklin Roosevelt is running for re-election, who's he going to look to but women ladies. to elect him? Where my ladies at? Yeah, yeah. So I'm really excited to get into this. Let's let her introduce herself. Okay. My name is Melissa Blair. I am an associate professor of history and an affiliate faculty with the Women and Gender Studies program at Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. Oh, and this is your second time on our podcast. It is. It is. I'm excited to be back. It's been a while. Last time you were on talking about the rise of Black women's clubs. So if you want to head back and listen to that episode from season one. Oh my gosh, that was so long ago. I think season one. (laughs) Um, So you're, you're part of the OG crew that we've had on the podcast. So you have recently published, or it's coming out, um, a new book on women and the White House. Would you tell us a little bit about that and why this is such an important topic for teachers to bring into the classroom? Sure. So the book is called Bringing Home the White House, 
Um, and then it's got a long after the colon part about like, you know, the, it's like the, that I can never remember. It's like the hidden history of the women who shaped the presidency in the 20th century or something like that. It changed like six times in the production process, which is why I can never remember it. Bringing home the White House, though, was always locked from the beginning. And the tight part of why the title was locked is because it plays really nicely with the two parts of the story that I'm telling in the book. Um, the book is a group biography of five women who ran the women's division of either the Democratic or Republican National Committees from 1932 until 1960. So it's, and I'm only looking at the women who are actually working in the in the White House, who are working for presidents who win elections. Um, and so it's three women who worked for FDR, a woman who worked for Harry Truman, and a woman who worked for Eisenhower. So four Democrats and one Republican. These women are at the center, I discovered, of these campaigns, of the campaigns to elect and re-elect these men to the presidency. Starting in the 1930s, they're building these massive networks to connect women all over the country to the Democratic and Republican parties. And then they are using those women as the women from both parties use this phrase. They are the saleswomen of the party. And this is where the bringing home piece, I think, really comes from and why I think it's important for teachers to talk about this. There's very much this sense that the middle of the 20th century, and especially after World War II, right, the sort of early Cold War period, is a time when sort of politics was not polite conversation. And when women certainly were not engaged in par- in party politics in particular, were not talking about politics, that politics was not a thing that that you talked about, right? And we hear this a lot today, that, that that's this new thing to be talking about politics in families and at home, that it's this new divisive thing. And it's just not true. Um, what we see is that for this 30-year span of time, there are powerful women within the DC offices of both major parties, even when they're like when the Republicans lose again in 48, they basically copy everything that the Democrats have been doing with women um, for the previous 15 years, because they're like, something's not working. We got to blow it up. And so Bertha Adkins, the woman who works for Eisenhower, um, is hired in 1950 to basically build what the Democrats have had for the previous almost 20 years. And one of the things that they have is tens of thousands of women on their mailing lists who regularly receive newsletters and postcards and magazines with talking points and with instructions to go have political conversations with your friends and neighbors. Here's the information we're giving you so that you know how to do it. Here are the three points. Sometimes they're just little postcards. And it'll be like five bullet points on tax policy, five bullet points on foreign policy. Um, And women are being instructed to have these political conversations all the time with their neighbors at the bus stop in the grocery store like these women that work in Washington are weaving it into suburban housewives lives and it's working the size of the mailing lists shows that it's a popular thing to do and this work is really sort of respected and valued and i think that's why teachers should bring it in is cuz it really blows up this myth of like women at home and only yeah. at home. Right. It's like, and they are at home. These women are at home. That's the thing. They are, you know, they are the majority of American women are housewives in the time period I'm studying. The statistic, like, it's only about by 1960, we're up to like almost 40% of American women are working for wages outside of the home. 
And women in the way that the Census Bureau does it for that statistic is 15 and older. So 40% of females 15 and older are in the paid labor force, roughly it's a little under 40 in 1960. So the majority of these women are housewives, but that doesn't mean they're not political. It doesn't mean they're not talking about politics. It doesn't mean that people in Washington don't see them as important because they're also, women are also seen as swing voters, especially in those post-war elections. Bringing home the White House. I like that. But there's another myth there too, that I think you're busting, at least for me, that people didn't talk about politics before this and, and women in particular, right? Like, um, so that's really interesting. So there, so there's these committees within the elected office in, in the White House and the executive branch trying to get them reelected. Yes. Were there only three for Franklin Roosevelt or were these just the three that you selected? To these are the three at? women who run it. These are okay. the three. So I'm looking at the heads of the women's division. Um, there are always eh, somewhere in the ballpark of 15 to 20 women who work for the five women that I'm studying. Um, but I'm looking at the at the heads of the women's division, largely because they're the ones whose papers got saved. They're the yeah. ones who are memoirs. There's the one, they're the ones that I can that I can get access to to really detailed, rich stories of what they were doing. Um, but the ones that they work for pop up. In a, as well, there that work for them, I should say, pop up as well. Okay, and so the Republicans under Eisenhower try to replicate that, and they don't realize that the Democrats had a whole team of women doing this, and they only appoint one woman. Well, no, they she Bertha Adkins has an office also. She she again yeah. is the head. Adkins yeah. is the new head of the women's division, and she also okay. has a whole office of okay. women who work for her. Yeah, and okay. they, and and I should say the Republican National Committee had had. A women's division in the 1940s, 30s and 40s. Um, it's just not functioning in exactly the same way. There's lots for complicated reasons. I talk about them in the book. There's also a brilliant, brilliant book by Catherine Rimpf with the really straightforward and slightly boring title of just Republican women um, that tells the story in a lot of detail over a couple of chapters of what Republican Party women are doing in the 30s and 40s. Um, I lean on that book quite a bit in the first Republican chapter of my book. So there's there's more tension around women and how women are fitting into the parties, partially with the Republicans, partially because they have a robust network of Republican women's clubs that are not directly part of the national committee. And the Democrats never have anything like that. Like for the Democrats, it's only the women's division of the Democratic National Committee. That's it. That's how grassroots women connect to the Democratic Party. With the Republicans, there are several different ways that women can plug in. And so, and I, I write about this in the book, it means that that Adkins has Eisenhower's ear. The, the cover photo of the book is a lovely photograph of uh, the two of them, uh, she, Adkins and Eisenhower, sitting behind his desk in the Oval Office, like laughing, big smiles on their face. It's, this, it's from the 56 campaign period. It's this beautiful picture. Um, so she's influential, but she's not the sort of only stop for connecting with Republican women in the way that the Democratic women were. Okay, that makes sense. What are some of the big events or, you know, initiatives or work that, you know, so they're trying they're trying to get these guys reelected. Are there yeah. any, like, you know, kind of interesting anecdotal stories or things that teachers could bring in? Because, uh, like, sounds yeah. like a really interesting way that women are integrated into the White House. And, you know, Franklin Roosevelt was known. We have, we have the first, we have Frances Perkins, we have the right. first 
we just had an episode on Francis Perkins. This is very timely. Um, but, you know, he, he's obviously doing a lot to integrate women into the executive branch. Um, but, you know, are there any kind of interesting anecdotes um, that teachers could include in their classroom? Yeah. So I've got two moments that I'll, that I'll, that I'll talk about. Um, the first one is, um, the 1944 campaign. First time in 80 years that we are running an election during a war. And so what does that look like? How does that work? Like what are, how, what are the structures there? And there are some efforts to pass like bills to make it easier for soldiers to vote that don't really go anywhere for complicated reasons, having to do with the Republicans, like not wanting FDR to win a fourth term and, uh, white supremacist Southern Democrats not wanting African American soldiers to be able to vote, so that doesn't really doesn't some soldiers vote through these new me- measures, but not but the majority of soldiers don't vote in 1944. What was fascinating, so I love telling this story because it's a great like historian as detective story. Most of the stuff at the FDR Presidential Library on the 44 campaign is all bound in this enormous scrapbook. And so they bring out this enormous scrapbook and I open it. And the first few pages are clippings of headlines that say things like women to hold the balance of 1944 campaign. Now, if you read the scholarship on women's electoral behavior on women as voters, it basically, it implies nobody straight out says this, but they apply through omission over and over and over again, that once politicians figured out that women didn't vote as a single block by the late 1920s, they stopped caring about women as voters until feminists made them again in the late 60s. So to see these headlines that say, and it's pure demographics, all of these men are deployed, there are more women, just numerically, more women are going to vote in 1944 than men because of the war. And so the woman whose name is Gladys Tillett, um, and she's fascinating. She's the only Southerner of the five the five women, and I'm a Southerner, so I like that. Um, she's a lifelong North Carolinian. Um, Gladys Tillett is the head of the women's division in 1944, and she dedicates herself to getting women to the polls, right? Tons of people move during the war. They move for defense jobs. They move around. So we got to get everybody registered. We have to rebuild all of these structures that we use to, um, to get women tied into the party so that they can keep doing the work of being the saleswomen of the party that they've been doing for three elections already for the Democrats. Um, But women are really seen as holding the balance of the 1944 election. And it's something that we don't talk about when we talk about World War II, when we talk about women in World War II. (laughs) I've never thought about that. I mean, I (laughs) spent so much time studying World War II. That is such an interesting point. Yeah. Um, And when you think about it, it's like, of course, right? Like millions of men are on naval ships in the middle of the Pacific or in, you know, Central Europe by November, you know, of 44. And it's, of course, it's sort of like, it's almost a dumb moment when you open it. But, and they they use the phrase, the women's year in the media Mm. when talking about that campaign, which is a phrase that we associate with like 1992, these sort of year of the woman, these moments when lots of women get elected. Um, but they, they really talk about it as like the women are going to, are going to swing the pendulum, um, mm. for, and it was a great moment in the archives to be like, what I yeah. thought was going to happen is in fact happening. So that's one thing that I think teachers could pull in is like, how do you run an election during a war? Yeah. And, so and, can I ask you a question though? Because, so I'm, I'm now I'm like pulling pieces together from, from yeah. what you've said. And 
Um, I read a book called The Bedford Boys uh, about the uh, group of boys from Virgin- Bedford, oh, Virgin- yeah. uh-huh. Uh-huh. who um, they Bedford lost more boys on D-Day than any right. other town in the world. Yeah. And because, yeah. you know, back then they put them all together. All so together. when, right. you know, once right. they land at Omaha Beach, like, you know, right. off they all so, that book is a really great book actually for women's history too, because the author goes back and forth um, between the experiences of the boys and their families back at home. And um, one of the moms in that story um, never forgives Eisenhower for D-Day and she blames him. And it's making me think now, like if women are really going to be the people that swing the election what are the things that are influencing women's votes um because yeah. you know like because you know the, in, in some ways they could be resentful that their sons and mm-hmm. husbands and whatever are abroad um yeah. and how do you and, and, and a lot of you know i we got into the war really really late because yeah. public opinion was against any yeah. involvement yeah. um so like yeah how how yeah. obviously franklin roosevelt wins again right but, um, well, and so what's interesting is that there, I, I can, I can sort of answer that okay. um, because there's this whole, it's the women's year thing. Um, both parties put women, um, actually elected officials, women, one woman who's already in Congress, one woman who's running for Congress. They, they put them front and center, give them very prominent positions, speaking uh, slots at the national convention, that sort of thing. And the Republicans highlight a woman uh, from Connecticut, a Republican Congresswoman from Connecticut named Claire Booth Luce. So she's a sort of famous, um, she was a playwright, the play The Women, um, she wrote that becomes a movie that Catherine Hepburn's in in the 30s. So she writes that. And then she marries Henry Luce, who's the publisher of Time and Life. So she's very prominent. And she gives this speech at the Republican National Committee in which she essentially says, it's Roosevelt and the Democrats' fault that you all have lost sons and brothers and husbands. And the press kill her for it like, really a, a roundly i can't pull the quotes off the top of my head but like you can just get the new york times article and they're like we better not be politicizing these deaths like that yeah. is not that is not okay that is not what we do then the democratic convention's about three weeks later and uh the woman who gives the speech there is a woman named helen gahagan douglas um, who was also an actress. Um, her husband uh, was Melvin Douglas, who was a famous MGM star in the 20s. She has retired from acting. They have three children. He is deployed. Um, her husband is deployed. Uh, she's running for Congress and she wins in 44 um, and then is in Congress until she loses a sort of famously nasty um, battle uh, ca- uh, Senate campaign against Richard Nixon in 1950. Um, he calls her the pink lady. He red baits her in 1950. Um, and she loses and it's a sort of famously nasty campaign. But anyway, in 44, she's running for the first time. She need there's a biography of her that's not awesome. Somebody needs to do a lot more with her. She's fascinating. Okay. Um, Listen, audience, that's Helena Hagen Douglas. Go yeah. for that. Go um, she's her. gonna come up in the other story that I said I was gonna tell too here in a minute. So okay. I'm glad I'm introducing her here. So she gives this speech and she very much dials back, but and doesn't like match loose toe-to-toe. They try, the press tries the whole campaign to make them. I mean, there are headlines that are like. Claire versus Helen, Torch versus Icicle. Like they try to gin up this rivalry between them. And Douglas wants nothing to do with it. But all she says at the end of the speech is, we dishonor their memory if we make this political and if we put the conclusion of the war in untested hands. 
And that's mm. the argument that like Gladys Tillett and that the Democrats are really making is that, look, this thing's winding down, but it ain't over yet. And we need the guy who's gotten us this far to finish the job. That's that's the argument that they make. Also, just as an aside, um, India Edwards, who's the woman who runs the women's division for Truman, gets into politics after Claire Booth Luce's speech. Her son was her son was was KIA. He was killed in a training accident um, in December 1942. And she is so infuriated by Luce's speech that she goes and starts volunteering for the Democratic Party like two weeks later. Really? Oh, yeah. so that sort of stuff, that yeah. rhetoric really didn't land. It did not for, land. For these moms and, yeah. and wives, like there's a mission and we're part of that mission. Yeah. And yeah. okay, yeah. interesting. I mean, obviously, I mean, like it's it's like, you know, Roosevelt wins, but just, you know, why? You know, yeah. That. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's so amazing. So what's the second, what's the second story you wanted so to share So the second story us? I'll just do briefly is, but because it's so timely right now, yeah. Um, in 1948, of course, nobody thinks Truman has a chance, right? This is the Dewey defeats Truman famous election. All the pollsters get it wrong. Nobody thinks Truman has a chance in this election. And the main domestic issue that they focus on for the campaign, and this is why I say it's very timely, is inflation. The Republicans had gotten control of Congress in the 46 campaign and in early 40 or 46 election. And in early 47, once they're actually there, they remove all of the remaining price controls that had still been in place since the end of the war. Um, just in one fell swoop, they take them all off and prices go through the roof. And women's division really becomes Helen Gahagan Douglas in April of 48 um, gets up on the floor of the house and gives a speech when she has gone to Safeway and bought like, it's like green beans and soap and like ground round and all. I love the shopping stuff. It's this great, like, how did we eat in the 1940s sort of window? Um, And she gives this speech where she pulls out her receipt from Safeway and then pulls out a list of what the price for those goods was at the end of 1946 when the price controls were still in place. And they're like, the Republicans did this. The Republicans are the ones who are making it harder for you to feed your family. And that, and India Edwards, who's the head of the women's division, does that over and over. That is the that is the note they hit for the whole campaign. And Edwards even designs this thing called Housewives for Truman. That's a program that goes to about ten different states, swing states. Um, it's in New York, Minnesota, West Virginia. I can't remember the rest of them. And it's like an airstream trailer with like banners and stuff. And they do basically the same shtick: a group of Democratic Party women. So these women who are on their mailing lists and have been getting this stuff go to a local grocery store that morning have a little chalkboard easel out front, write down what they paid that day for the stuff and then what they would have paid a year and a half earlier when price controls were in place. And it's fascinating also just for how do you how do you campaign on an issue like that in an era of no internet, of expensive long distance phone calls? What the women's division does for the whole month of October, Edwards asks women in about 10, 12 to 15 cities, she sends out this schedule at the beginning of October and she's like, okay, on this date, I need to know the price of these three good, you know, these five items in these three cities. So it's like in San Francisco, Cleveland, and Dallas, how much are you paying for like onions, steak, and milk or something? And then and it's twice a week for the last month of the campaign. They go, they shop, they telegram that information to the women's division office, and it then gets folded into the script for these twice a week radio programs that they were doing for the whole last month of the campaign. Wow. I mean, that is like, 
that's kitchen table politics though, right? Like yep. that's and it wins. That, it like, wins in the election. It wins yeah. in the election. Wow, that's really cool. And I could see how that would be motivating to women voters who tend yeah. in that time to like be the primary shoppers. Exactly. And, um, wow, that's really so okay. You've given us so many cool like key terms, and I jotted a few down. So there's Gladys Tillett, she's the head of the women's division during the war. You've got Helen Gahagan Douglas, um, who does all this awesome stuff and gives these great speeches in 48. And then there's you you name dropped an organization, Housewives for Truman. How yeah. I didn't know that existed. Yeah. So it's and and then you mentioned like all of this is in the press. The, there's these speeches mm-hmm. that are being given. So I feel like mm-hmm. you've given teachers so many primary sources that they could you know, you get on the Library of Congress's Chronicling America website and go through the papers. Um, but are there any particular sources that you would really encourage people to look at to better understand, you know, how women helped bring home the White House? Yeah, I'm actually, my favorite set of primary sources that are available to teachers, I'm actually going to go in a slightly different direction. Sure. Um, and a lot of Eleanor Roosevelt's correspondence is digitized. A lot. Oh, of it. yeah. Um, and she, and, um, prepare yourselves. If you go there, her handwriting is appalling. (laughs) Like when I was at the Roosevelt library, I asked the archivist, I was like, is there a trick to figuring out what the heck this says? And she just laughed and goes, I asked that of the archivist I was replacing, who was retiring, who I was replacing when she was training me. And she just looked at me and said, patience, dear. (laughs) Like it's, so so brace yourselves like what what she told me she's like honestly print out a couple of the pictures and try to write over top of it so that you can try to figure out what letters she's trying to make i mean that's how bad it is it's real real bad Um, that's that's hilarious because i just assume i can't read cursive because i like am a millennial and whatever you know i am i am i am a very i am a very young gen xer i can read cursive i just can't read eleanor roosevelt's handwriting It's real bad. It's uh, real, real bad. But anyway, in her, where I want to specifically direct teachers to, and this is to talk about something that we haven't really raised here yet. Everyone I've been talking about is white. Everyone that they're talking to is understood in their imagination to be white and mostly middle class. The the housewives for Truman, the inflation stuff has a little bit of like working class women are, are a little bit more prominent there. Um, but there is a woman whose name is Crystal Bird Fawcett, F-A-U-S-E-T is her last name. So not like, like a water faucet, but with an S instead of a C. Um, she is an African-American politician from Pennsylvania. She's the first, uh, fe- black female state legislator in Pennsylvania. Um, and she's friends with the, with Eleanor. And her, the, there's one folder of correspondence. So how the the Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt correspondence is digitized is by correspondent. So it's like there's a folder of stuff of her writing to Crystal Fawcett. Okay. And there's really, if you, Fawcett is really pushing in 1944, she's becoming increasingly frustrated with the Democratic Party's refusal to be more, more upfront and more aggressive on racial issues. Yeah. She's really pushing for as she should be. <laughs> as she should be. Um, and she's working with Eleanor to try to get this series of interracial women's meetings going in the context of uh of the 44 campaign. 
of trying to get interracial groups of women together with, and the idea she sort of lays out this whole big, big thing of like, we're going to have these series of regional meetings and then Labor Day weekend, we're going to have this big culminating meeting in New York, um, maybe at Madison Square Garden, maybe at Central Park on the theme of American unity. And it's going to be an interracial political group of women. And Eleanor is all jazzed about it. What I love directing people here is because what they did, as you should do when you're digitizing archival stuff, is they literally just took a picture of everything in the folder, like turn a page, take a picture, turn a page, take a picture. So you can see the physicality of it. Like what's a telegram? What's a letter? There is literally a scrap of paper. Like it has been torn off a scrap of paper that's handwritten that says, memo to Mrs. Roosevelt. And I'm not going to get, it's like three sentences. I can't do the whole thing off the top of my head, but it's from FDR. And the quote is, the more said about the racial issue, I'm going to butcher it, but basically the idea is the more said about race right now, the more lives will be lost. And it's unclear what he means. Does he mean the Republicans will win and that will prolong the war? And that's what will cost the lives. Or is he referring to things like the Mobile Shipyards riot, the Zoot Suit riots, the racial tensions that are already happening around the war and military stuff domestically? Impossible to say which one he meets. But FDR personally shuts this thing down. No way. Like, tells his wife, no. And then yeah. the next letter to uh, from Eleanor to Fawcett is, the president has told me, we can't do this. Oh, interesting. And it's this. That's amazing, interesting too, because she, there are other examples like. Where know, she ignores the, him when he says. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, this time she listens. And I think, and, and it's this tantalizing what if, right? The sort of for, for other scholars of women's history, the kind of argument that weaves through the book is sort of, this is how white feminism stayed white. This is an example of that. Yeah. Because they're they are happy to work with black women who fit into their design of what they're doing. Like if you're a middle class political woman, professional woman, so there are a handful of black women who pop up all over the place. But they never think about the difference that race makes. They never mm-hmm. think about letting those handful of black women come in and say, actually, this would work better if you did it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not the kind of like overt racism that we think about as perpetuating sort of racially exclusive spaces. It's just, this is, we didn't have, you know, this is just the world we knew and that's what we built. And it just kind of stayed that way, but it's a really powerful example. I think of why I sort of talk about it as this bridge because Molly Dusen, who's the woman who, um, who builds the women's division in the early thirties that then become if and for, she's good friends with both Franklin and Eleanor, and she builds this structure that then, as I said, is co- persists in the Democrats and is copied by the Republicans. She's a product of the progressive era, right? Yeah. She was. She is a very much, she's born in 1874. She is a progressive era. And we know all about the sort of racial segregation of women's politics then. And yeah. so if that's the person who's building the structure that then lasts until 1960 and nobody right. else is changing it. Like I talk about it as this bridge of how women's politics stays so segregated. Right, because yeah. it's not like black women aren't doing politics, especially after right. they're doing a ton of politics. But it's not intersecting with this partisan piece, with right. this piece that's running through the major parties. And yeah. so it's this tantalizing "what if" of if Eleanor had been able to put her weight behind integrating women's politics yeah. in 1944. Like, what does the second wave look like? Right. right? What does what does 60s feminism look like if that happens? It right. looks very different. It looks well, it's very- hard because it's not like there isn't 
ample things to be concerned about for not just black people, but specifically black women in 1944. It strikes me like that's the year that Reese Taylor is, is Reese Taylor. Yep. And uh, gang raped in, um, Yep. And Rosa Parks is doing Yeah, and Rosa Parks comes down to be where I'm sitting. Yeah. 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 So it's not like this is a, you know, all the the race stuff hasn't happened yet. It is happening. It is happening. Right. Well, in the mobile shipyards, right, that I mentioned, right? That's a that's a race based. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's so that folder of correspondence with Fawcett and Eleanor is a really good way of looking at race and women's politics. That's really but that also has, I think, for students the interesting tactile aspect, right? To see a printout of a Western Union telegram and to be like, what is this? Yeah. Um, right? So it's got, it's good. There's a lot of different ways that I could see teachers really using that particular source in, in a lot of really interesting and compelling ways. We also need to teach students that just because they wrote in cursive doesn't mean that it was good. Legible. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. There's a, I mean, there's a reason I don't do night. There's lots of reasons I don't do 19th century history, but that's one of them. 90% of what I get to do with is typed. And that makes my life a lot easier. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, that's amazing. So your book is coming out in September, September 1st. Yep. September 1st. Okay. And we're going to put a link to where people can uh, pre-order your book in the show notes. Um, Amazing. So, and um, is bringing home the White House. Yep. So cool. Is there any last things that you want to share with our audience before we sign off here? Uh, I think the last thing I'll mention is that I feel like this book is a really good example um, for history teachers and maybe history students to think about how historians do their work. I went into these presidential archives trying to pick at that argument that they didn't think about women as voters. Mm-hmm. Like that was what I was trying to. I had no idea any of these women existed. The women that yeah. I write about, I'd never heard of them. I, I'll then, be honest, I've never heard any no, of them. Nobody's ever heard of them. This is like, this is why I'm so excited about this book is, and they were terrified of being forgotten, right? India Edwards, the one who, um, who works for Truman, publishes a memoir in the mid seventies, like in the teeth of second wave feminism. And still, and I wrote my first book about that time period, never heard of her. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, that still, there's so much still to discover about our story. There are still so many holes, even in a time period that we think we know really well, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, what was going on like less than a hundred years ago? Of course we do. Like, eh, do we? There are still so many holes. And I think like, quote, revisionist history, big giant air quotes, right? Gets dinged for all sorts of reasons. That's exactly what I'm doing. Yeah, I am am completely revising a story because nobody had gone and looked for this stuff. Nobody had gone into the presidential archive, presidential libraries and said, I want to look at your campaign stuff through the lens of women. Yeah. Nobody had done that. And I was having a conversation with somebody years ago when I was first starting this project. And she was like, I'm getting angry about your research question, not because it's not a good question, but because it's such an old school kind of political history that if it was about guys, we would have had this book 20 years ago. Right. And I'm like, yep. Yep. <laughs> so Well, and I think why I'm really excited about your question is it's reminding all of us that all of history needs that, not just not just presidential history, but all history needs this revision. And it's you're gonna write the book and then 
hopefully some young listener is going to rewrite your book because you missed something and like we need those layers of history um, and history's revisions and you know I'm looking at data that shows that young women aren't attracted to history because they don't see themselves in it and it's like oh let us show you you're in this you know and I think this is a really cool it's a really cool thing that you're doing um, and then starting yeah. One last point on that very quickly. I didn't even get into it because it wasn't really what we were talking about today, but I already know what my third book's going to be because, <laughs> because the woman who works for Eisenhower that I said is like on the cover, a lovely picture of her in the, in the Oval Office in 1956. Yeah, she's a lesbian. She's not supposed to be in that room. Yeah. She's not supposed to. And so, and she, her, I've, I can, so I want to do, and her partner is a woman named Winifred Helms, Winnie. Um, Winnie, God bless her, kept a diary of their time as a like DC power couple in the mid 1950s. And so I'm going to do a sort of just a biography of the two of them um, is going to be the next book. Um, because there's so much more, Yeah. There's so much more to say there. And I didn't even find out like, because Adkins, not at all, surprisingly excised all mentions of this from her own papers. I didn't even know about Winnie till I was like 90% through with the project. Hmm. Um, and so it's there, but only very lightly. Um, How did you stumble upon her? Um, so I stumbled upon the diary and this is this is the crazy way that historians work, right? So um, Adkins and there's one other woman um, named Dorothy McAllister who was the second one who worked for FDR. I didn't know as much about the two of them as I did about the other three. And so while I was writing every so often, I would just plop their names into Google and just yeah. plop their names into Google just once every couple of months, see what happens. Yeah. Did that one time with Bertha Adkins and up pops a Facebook post from the archives of this tiny college on the eastern shore of Maryland, that's where they're from, that holds their papers. And it was like highlighting our our archival collections. And it was like, today we're going to talk about the diary of, you know, Winifred Helms. And and there it was. And I was like, (laughs) Um, and I emailed the archivist and then God love this archivist. I was like, I see that it's not, you know, I see that the diary isn't like, there's not a digital copy of it anywhere. Like if you could just scan me like four pages, like please. And I hate to say this out loud because somebody's going to scoop me now, but I'm here. So we got to keep going. This sweet archivist emailed me back and she's like, I have it as a PDF. Do you want it? She just emailed it to me. It's just sitting on my computer. That's amazing. (laughs) And that's why I like, I tell my agent who's not going to be happy. I said this out loud. Um, I was like, I got to get working on book number three because some good graduate student's going to read those footnotes and find out about the diary. And they're going to be So, so work on (laughs) book three is, is underway. um, Oh, Because it's just too good of a story not to figure out. It's like, and they're not like, they're not completely in the closet. I talk about this in the book, like uh, Adkins turns 50 during the 56 uh convention so like yeah. on the, and so eisenhower wants to give her a, a present and he's giving her a bracelet and he's having it engraved and the white house gift officer calls winnie to make sure they've got the date right oh that's good <laughs> it's like okay. yeah. but i think that's really i mean you know we did a few few of our lesson plans for our grant from the library of congress this fall looked at the lives of queer women and there are lots of women who parallel that same timeline um even like carrie chapman cat yeah. like yeah. her gravestone you know has yeah. her it's her and her partner and oh, yeah winnie and um, winnie and her name's bertha adkins nobody's calling their partner bertha winnie called her tad Winnie, yeah. and Tad are, Winnie and Tad are buried together. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I, I think, I think there's a lot more 
uh, you know, we, I think we talk about myths of, or, you know, or fallacies of history. Like this is another one that like people weren't out, you know, it was like, yeah. Oh, it was, it was not something that people knew or talked about. It's like, yeah, they did. Like it's obvious. Like <laughs> it's <very> obvious. <laughs> so, right. That's cool. That's really neat. Well, good luck on the third book. That's so exciting. Thanks. I guess maybe you'll have to come back for a third interview. Yes, it's going to be a while, but yes. I would be <laughs> oh, so cool. Okay, well, everyone listening, you have to like Pinky promise that you won't scoop her story and let her write the book. Please. I mean, you can, you can do the second draft later. <laughs> oh, amazing. Well, thank you so much for sharing this history with us. Thank you, Kelsey. It's always good to talk to you. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.